Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And from the New Testament, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week I made the point that living for the gospel is actually a promotion of the gospel. Jesus said that the lives of His disciples, their lives of mercy, peacemaking, turning the other cheek, love of enemy, etc., uh, will shine throughout the world and lead people to glorify God with us, the power of a life. But this week, I want to pivot to the lips, speaking because I don't want to leave the impression that it's all about just living the gospel. There really is a call to speak about Christ in daily life and in a range of ways. Uh, you may have heard the quite true story reported uh, by uh, several news services about Captain Roger Finderson, who in preparing for takeoff on Flight 34, American Airlines, from Los Angeles to New York, made his usual announcement through the PA that we'll be flying at 30,000 feet, conditions pretty smooth, five-hour flying time, etc., etc., uh, and uh, would all the Christians on board please raise their hands? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what I would have done. I don't think I would have raised my hand, not until I found out what was about to happen. He then said that he was a Christian and that uh, it would be really wise if passengers used the five-hour flying time to quiz 
those who would identify themselves as Christians about the Christian faith. And indeed, he would be happy to answer people's questions uh, when they land in New York. Sweet. <laughs> not so much. The reaction from the passengers was really not what uh, he had hoped. In the light of 9-11, some people really thought a crazy religious nut had taken control of the aircraft. Passenger Amanda Nelligan told the news services, quote, I was definitely made to feel nervous, as were a lot of people around me, his words felt like a threat. You know, like, get to know Jesus because you might need him real soon, you know. Oh. Apparently, some passengers even pulled out their phones and started to call their loved ones in a panic. Now, everything was fine. Fine. Captain Finneson was just keen. In fact, it turns out he'd just come back from a mission trip to Costa Rica and was on fire for Jesus and just thought this would be a way of promoting Jesus in the workplace through the PA to his passengers. Well, he got into trouble, it turns out. But I tell you that true story because it raises a question many Christians ask, perhaps all of us ask at some point, and some of us ask it out of pure fear and others out of pure delight, how and when does the Lord really expect us to speak up for Him? Does He expect the sort of thing that Captain Findenson felt inspired to do? Should you, on the train in the morning, on the way to work or whatever, should you declare your faith? How and when does the Lord expect us to speak up for Him? And what I want to do tonight, uh, just kind of high-level thing, about the three answers the Bible gives to that question, the three dimensions of speaking for Christ. And I genuinely believe that without all three, our reaching out to others, our speaking on behalf of Christ, will be kind of flat. The first dimension is perhaps the most obvious one, and it is simply that some of us are evangelists. According to the Bible, God has given to the church some people whose gig is the evangelist. Um, you mustn't, when you hear that word, think necessarily of a Billy Graham traveling the world. You certainly mustn't think of the tele-evangelist yelling down the barrel of a TV camera asking for your money. This word is a damaged word, but it's actually a beautiful New Testament word. It is the word gospel with an ending that means er. Gospel er. That's all it is. Euangelistes. Gospel er. It is simply someone uh, whose focused task is to tell the gospel to those for whom it is news. And one of the best kept secrets of uh, the study of all of this is that the New Testament sees evangelists as serving specific churches or districts. We have in this mind the traveling evangelist, and that is certainly true, we do have examples of that in the New Testament, but uh, many of the New Testament gospelers are gospelers for either specific churches or clusters of churches. So, for example, there is the unnamed brother praised by the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8 for his work in the gospel. Uh, there are two um, women evangelists, Euodia and Syntyche, who are contenders for the gospel just in Philippi. We have Epaphras, who evangelized uh, the region known as the Lycus River Valley, three cities in Turkey that are just like 25 kilometers from each other. So he was like a district 
evangelist. Philip is named an evangelist in the book of Acts, not when he's running around the countryside, but when he's in Caesarea doing the work of an evangelist in one city. And Timothy is urged to continue as an evangelist while stationed at Ephesus. He has been working with Paul, traveling, evangelizing. Now he's in Ephesus and Paul says, you keep doing that work of evangelism in your city. And perhaps the most obvious thing to say about this is that only some of us are evangelists, according to the New Testament. Ephesians 4 couldn't really be clearer. It was Christ who gave to the church some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I mean, in the face of a text like this, the once common slogan, every Christian and evangelist, just doesn't work. It just simply isn't what the New Testament says. We do all have a role in promoting the gospel, but the New Testament doesn't even come close to saying we are all evangelists, gospel-ers. And I don't even think um, that this text is saying that one of the roles of the evangelist is to train others to do evangelism. Um, you sometimes hear people say that on the basis of verse 12, you know, since uh, these ministry types prepare God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. Some people have said, oh well, uh, the role of the evangelist is to train others to, be, to, be, to do evangelism. I don't even think that works. Um, since what if you applied it to apostles? You know, were they to train others to be apostles? Or prophets, were they to train others to be prophets? Or teachers, to train others to be teachers? It just doesn't work. The role of the evangelist is simply to proclaim the gospel to those for whom it is news. And by that, the church is strengthened and, uh, and built up. So that's the sum. The sum. And w- what a lovely thought it would be that there are some in this 6 p.m. congregation whom Christ has given to us to evangelize to have a focused task. And may God um, bless that and give you opportunities and release you. But I want to talk about the role we all have, uh, the second dimension of speaking. is simply that we all declare God's praises from the ancient Psalms through to the New Testament, the gathered worship or praise of God's people as they praise God in songs and creeds and prayers, is in part evangelism. A speaking to those who merely overhear the gospel through our praises. And you get this in many passages, but Psalm 96 um, is one clear passage, because here is an act of praise that is simultaneously an invitation to the pagans to come and join in. So we read, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. And then listen to this. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Now suddenly, the praise itself is directed at those who don't yet believe. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Praise is in part also to be overheard by those who don't yet believe. And uh, Psalm 57, 105, 117, 
say the same thing. Now, the New Testament picks this same thought up, and the Apostle Peter, who was raised in the synagogue worship and the the temple worship of his day, he knew that the praise of God's people was, in a sense, in part, a proclamation to the wider world. He says the same thing to his Christian converts in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You've been made a people in order to declare God's praises. Now, I agree with all of those commentators, it's most commentators, who think the middle part of 1 Peter is largely about mission, about how Christians are to reach the world. The question is, what sort of mission does the language declare praises refer to? I used to think, in fact, I, I used to teach that it refers to sort of personal evangelism. You're sitting on the bus with someone and you declare the praises means you start up a conversation about Jesus. Or I, I thought it referred to my preaching. But actually, the language Peter uses is specific language. It is to use jargon, liturgical language. That is the language of praise. Aratas exangelate means the gathered praises of God's people. It's language straight out of the book of Psalms, actually. He's referring to the way churches declare God's praises whenever they gather. And I call as my witness Tim Keller a name you may have heard once or twice in this church, maybe. <laughs> in his book, Worship by the Book, he says what I just said, so I must be right. Israel was called to make God known to unbelieving nations by singing His praises. The temple was to be the center of a world-winning worship. The people of God not only worship before the Lord, but also before the nations. He's referring to Psalm 96. God is to be praised before all nations. And as He is praised by His people, the nations are summoned and called to join in song. This pattern does not essentially change in the New Testament, where Peter tells a Gentile church to declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness. The term cannot merely refer to preaching. In fact, I would go further and say it cannot refer to preaching, but must also refer to gathered worship. I 100% agree. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul, not just Peter, expected visitors to come into normal church and overhear this praise and become Christians. There's this remarkable passage in 1 Corinthians 14, which I'll read in a second, where Paul speaks about visitors coming in. And um, it's quite clear he expects it to happen. Now, the interesting thing about this is churches in, in Paul's day didn't meet in public buildings. Where did they meet? In homes. In homes. And according to Greco-Roman etiquette, there is no way you could walk in off the street into someone's home. You had to be invited. 
And so when Paul speaks of visitors coming into the church, he clearly assumes that they've been invited by congregational members. But what he says is fascinating. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, uh, by the way, that doesn't mean predicting the future. Prophesying means plain speaking. To speak forth, profituo is all it means. They, the visitor, are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built or built up. Paul is saying, here is a church service that is a normal church service with people plain speaking, and a visitor comes in and overhears that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and so on. Hears all that and goes, ah, that's what they believe. Hears us praising God for His salvation. Hears us all crying out, Lord, we need You. We need You. And they're listening and taking it in and finding their own hearts challenged. And Paul thinks they can even be drawn to the point of joining in Worship, he says. I said yesterday at the seminar that uh, Rodney Stark, a sociology professor from Baylor University in the US, has been studying conversion for 40 years. He's not a Christian, which I find very weird that you would study conversion and, and not try it out for yourself. Um, but it, it, he, he, he's done all this research into what makes uh, churches grow. And um, in an interview with Christianity Today, he was asked, what is it that makes evangelical churches grow? Because they seem to be the only ones that grow. Um, and I'm including the Pentecostals in that. And Rodney Stark basically just said, oh, because evangelicals invite their friends to church. That's it. That's, that's like the defining factor. Now, of course, I want it to be all about awesome preaching and the evangelist, right? That's what, no. It's just that people invite their friends, and their friends come, come into church, and they hear the gospel through our praises, because every church service, every good church service, has the gospel throughout. I could tell you story after story of people in my church at St. Andrews Roseville who have come to faith not through the fancy evangelistic programs I ever developed there, but simply by coming to boring church services and thinking this is special and wanting to know more and keep on coming. And Henry and Sandra are a perfect example of this because they were completely non-churched and their daughter came home from Roseville Public one day, having done a scripture lesson there, and asked Sandra about God. And Sandra basically said, we don't do God in this family. And the daughter wouldn't have that. She said, well, I want to I know about God. And, and, and Sandra just said, no, that's, that's, what, um, that's what they do at church. And the daughter said, well, can we go to church? Well, she didn't really know, like, how you go to church. But at a school function, Sandra was talking to Buff, my wife, and she said, you're, you're sort of churchy, aren't you? Yes, yes, I'm churchy. Um, are we, like, allowed to come to like a church service? 
Sandra had it in her head that maybe like you needed some special card, to, you know, like the Qantas Club or something to get in. Uh, and Buff, of course, said, yeah, you'd be most welcome. So she came. Sandra came with her daughter. And at the end of the service, they were just delighted with the experience. And next week came with Henry, who was not delighted. Henry sat there. There's no one looking like this right now, except you. Yeah, yeah, you are. Right? Henry sat there with arms folded, just, just sort of, maybe it was my imagination, scowling at me the whole time. And um, he sort of stood out, so I went and introduced myself, and he was, he, he was very open. He's only there because his daughter and wife dragged him along. Well, he was there the next week, and the next, and the next, and the next. And I remember some weeks down the track, Henry saying to me at the end of one of the services, you know what, this is the one hour of solace in my, my crazy busy life. I really love this. And he wasn't referring to my preaching. <laughs> he was just referring to the... I don't just mean aesthetics. I mean, he, he was referring to the... It's like, simultaneously, the seriousness and the joy in the meeting. The, the singing and the prayers about important things. They kept on coming. Eventually, Henry and Sandra both wonderfully devoted themselves to the Lord. They were in a Bible study with me for a couple of years. And um, I bet right now they are at St. Andrew's cleaning up after the supper uh, at the, from the 5 p.m. service. It was because of a normal garden variety church service that wasn't evangelistic, that just drew them in. And I guess what I'm saying is the second dimension of speaking up for the Lord, is just our praises in church. Let me pivot to the third and final dimension. Each of us gives an answer. Each of us gives an answer. Sure, the New Testament does not say we're all evangelists, but it does say we are all to give an answer for the faith. In fact, it almost looks like Peter and Paul got together and said, Let's make sure when we urge our people to speak up, let's just urge them to give an answer. Because you get it in both apostles. Here is uh, Peter. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Because things were hotting up in Asia Minor in the 60s, AD 60s. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And now look what Paul said to a different congregation in a different year. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Peter said, answer everyone. Paul said, answer everyone. This looks planned. What we want all Christians to be willing to do is give an answer when called upon to do so. And I love how both apostles are very keen to emphasize simultaneously confidence and humility. Confidence and humility. I mean, Peter is explicit. Don't fear anyone. Revere Jesus as Lord and answer everyone, right? It's very confident. 
And, and Paul, the same, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There's no one you're to be shy about. Yet, look at the call to humility and, and graciousness of speech. Peter, Peter says, um, second last line, um, the reason for the hope that you have, but do this answering with gentleness and respect. And Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace. And that's how you know how to answer everyone. How do you answer everyone? With grace. Here's a nice thought. You know how to answer everyone. You already do. You might not know what to answer everyone, sure, but you know how to answer everyone with gentleness and respect, with graciousness. Confidence and humility. And actually, they ought to go together. You know when you meet a bully, if you sit back and analyze it, they are usually quite insecure. Have you found that? And, and like the school bully particularly. The school bully was nearly always the really insecure person, and their bully behavior was compensation. And I think a bully church, a, a brash Christian, is often an insecure Christian. The most secure churches, the most secure Christians can afford to be gentle and respectful, gracious, because you know it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on winning the argument. Your role is just to speak with grace, whatever you can. That's our calling. And as much as I value the role of an evangelist, I mean, my livelihood partly depends on it, I can never doubt the miraculous value of a simple 30-second reply that you might give your friends. Because my own conversion really begins with my asking a question of my Scripture teacher. In year nine, I was 15 or 16, I had never been inside a church. I'd never said grace around the table. Ours was a godless home. But this Scripture teacher was intriguing to me. We all went to Scripture in those days because non-Scripture was a real teacher and it you know, had to do homework and they could get you into trouble and so on. But the little old ladies from down the road, which is what usually Scripture teachers were, uh, were kind of harmless and um, we, we put up with them. But, but we got more than we bargained for with this one. She was compelling and kind of funny and intriguing. And I went up to her after class once. I can right now picture myself in the hallway of the, of the school. And I said, excuse me, Mrs. Weldon. I'm not saying God's true, but, but if he is, what do you think he thinks of me? She just said, John, uh, God can see everything you've done, said, and thought. And she left a very awkward pause, just so I could mull on that. And my 15-year-old mind was like, everything, huh? <laughs> Oops. And then she said, but He loves you even still. That's it. I thanked her. I shot off into the playground. I sort of tried to forget those words, but they went round and round in my head. 
God sees everything I've done, said, and thought. And He loves me even still. Her reply was 30 seconds. But when she eventually invited the class to hear more about the gospel, I went because I just felt compelled. Please don't underestimate the little thing you might say that God the weaver can do beautiful things with. By God's grace, the three dimensions of speaking are powerful. Some are evangelists. Praise God. Let's find them, let's encourage them, let's train them, let's release them. All of us declare God's praises every week. Let's take what we do as normal church seriously, both as an act of worship, but also as an act of mission. And each of us gives an answer. Be prepared. Revere Christ, and you won't fear anyone else. And then just speak up and let Him do great things with your little thing. So, Lord, will you please use each one of us, um, help us um, through our own doubts and sense of inadequacy, maybe help us, Lord, from natural brashness, and help us to be those always willing to take opportunities to speak up for you, even if it's just a little thing. And, Lord, will you use us? Will you take our meager offerings and... Take that gospel to the world, to our loved ones, to our family, to our city, for the honor of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.